Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. First Kings chapter 11, reading verses 3 and 4. Speaking of Solomon, it said he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as a heart of David his father had been. Father, just like we have been singing, uh, we want to pour out our hearts to you. We want our hearts to be idle free. And I just pray, Father God, that today you would take your word and apply it to each of our lives. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Welcome back to our study in 1 Kings. As I said, we'll just be covering verses 3 and 4 this morning. Let's look at verse 3. Speaking of Solomon, it says, He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wife turned his heart away. Did I actually just read that right? Did it just say that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines? That's hard to imagine, isn't it? It reminds me of the story in Sunday school when they asked if the class thought that this would be a problem. One little girl raised her hand and she said, I know it's going to be a problem. Solomon not only has 700 wives, he also has to keep up with 300 porcupines. <laughs> Now, the women are the first thing that people think about when Solomon is mentioned. Okay, they're the first thing that most guys think about anyway. Sure, we're impressed with the man's wealth and wisdom. Who wouldn't be? But it's the harem that causes our craniums to crumble. Maybe it's because most of us guys have a hard enough time just keeping one woman happy. <laughs> But it seemed like Solomon had it all. Well, think about it. God himself had spoken to him. He was a king. He was the wisest man who, apart from Christ, that has ever lived. And he was insanely rich. He was like the mythological King Midas, and whatever he touched turned to gold. Stephen Wright says that he also has the Midas touch, except that whatever he touches turns into a muffler. <laughs> Midas muffler, for those of you who are wondering. But it sounds as if everything that Solomon touches turns to wisdom, buildings, and gold. Then we read these troubling words in verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Chapter 11 is the dull thud after the high hopes of chapters 1 through 10. But even worse than marrying all these foreign women, the king began to worship their gods. And that was the main problem. The ladies came not only carting their luggage, but nestled between the mascara and the moose, there would be a little idol. This was something that God had warned about from the very beginning. When he said, 
You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Foolishly, Solomon failed to heed this warning. He chose to disobey and to do things his own way, which is the recipe for frustration and destruction. It's also the same choice that we have to make. A Christian is not someone who chooses for Christ once, but someone who chooses for Christ and then lives out that choice every day for the rest of his or her life. Our ongoing access to divine wisdom is dependent upon a living, vital faith relationship with the Son of God. In things like our relationships, in the expenditure of our time and our money, in the use of our bodies, in the little frustrations that happen every day, in all the complexities of life, the question before us will always be, Will we choose for God or against Him? Solomon's choice was tragic, and then his life became a sad commentary on one of his own warnings from Proverbs. This is Proverbs 19.27, in which Solomon wrote, Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray away from the words of knowledge. According to 1 Kings 11, Eventually, the king committed many disgraceful sins that was offensive to the holiness of God and led directly to the downfall of his kingdom. Psalm was not faithful in marriage, but loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. He loved women from the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, and Hittite women. And once again, how many women did he love? At least a thousand, which is 999 times too many. So in this chapter, we learn that Solomon failed. I do not mean that he failed in some aspect of his life that can be overlooked because of his amazing success and so much that he did as we have seen thus far. I mean, he failed in such a huge way that all of his astonishing accomplishments really in many ways came to nothing. And here is the heart of Solomon's failure. It was heart failure. Moses had said in Deuteronomy 4.6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Sadly, those words were no longer on King Solomon's heart. The Lord Jesus Christ cited these words as the great and first commandment. They represent the first principle of human life. And so to fail here is to fail utterly. 
It's terrible to think that your life has been a failure. The thing is, it is difficult for us to be honest about this. The truth is, for all of us, our lives are a mixture of successes and failures. No one succeeds at everything, and likewise, no one fails at everything. But it's comforting to focus on our successes and to downplay our failures so that on balance, our successes outweigh our failures. Or so we like to think. But the question we prefer not to think about is, what constitutes success and failure in the human life? I think many of us have a sneaking suspicion that we may, we may be mistaken in our self-assessment. Perhaps our failures should be given more weight than our successes. Could it be that the areas in which we have succeeded are much less important than the areas in which we have failed? For instance... Is a successful businessman deluded when he thinks that the inheritance that he left his children outweighs his failure of being a father? Is a successful athlete mistaken to think that the trophies on her shelf make up for the failures in her relationship and her growing cocaine habit? So what constitutes success and failure in a human life? Has our life on balance been a success or failure? The Bible brings us the shattering news that every one of our lives left to themselves is a failure when measured by the criteria that really matters. This is as true of the person who has been a spectacular success in almost every aspect of life as in it is to the person who has horribly failed and the things that matter to us most. The Bible's perspective on this is found in Romans 3.10, which reads, There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside and become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That means that to fail to be righteous and to understand and to fail to seek God and instead turn aside is to utterly fail in the great enterprise of human life. Such a life has become, from heaven's vantage point, worthless. Now let me hasten to add, this is not all that the Bible teaches, but everything else makes very little sense until we have taken this part seriously. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you discover that Solomon's heart began to turn from the Lord, and when that happened, he went through a period of cynicism and despair. He even questioned whether life was even worth living. Without a close walk with the Lord, his heart was empty. So he pursued pleasure and became involved in commercial ventures with many foreign nations and engaged in various building programs. However, he still found no enjoyment in life. 
At least 38 times in Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes, Vanity of vanities. Meaningless. Worthless. Empty. His love for spiritual values was replaced by a love of physical pleasures and material wealth until gradually his heart turned away from the Lord. For you note-takers, his degeneration went like this. First, he was friendly with the world, James 4.4. 4. Then he was spotted by the world, James 1.27, until finally he came to love the world, 1 John 2.15. In Ecclesiastes, we read that Solomon took wives hoping to find fulfillment in them. Perhaps in search of the perfect woman, he thought, it'll be the next one. Until finally, when he came to the thousandth one, he said, it's all vanity. It's all empty. It's all meaningless. There is a misconception in today's society on both the part of men and women which says, if I just had someone else, I would be happier. If I was just with someone else, I know I would be more fulfilled. It's a subtle lie of Satan that he whispers in our ears, and it was whispered in the ears of Solomon as well. He thought that happiness was right around the corner in the next relationship, the next concubine, the next marriage. Surely then he would be fulfilled. But he wasn't. So let's keep Solomon in mind the next time we think we'd be tempted that we'd be happier with someone else. Solomon had the opportunity to experiment greatly in that area. It didn't work for him, and it won't work for us either. But at this point in his life, Solomon's slow seduction has finally started to bear fruit. And what is seduction? Seduction is the art of enticing a person to make negative behavioral choices that he or she would otherwise have avoided. The first seduction happened in the Garden of Eden when Satan enticed Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. The second seduction happened just a few minutes later when Eve held the fruit up to Adam, smacked her lips, moaned and said, Man, this is so good. Here, try some. One preacher said that if a naked woman walks up to any man with a piece of fruit, the man's always going to eat it without any question. If you know the story, after that, the blaming began. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the snake. And the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. That was for you, Junior. <laughs> and it's always tempting to blame others for our failures. Do we do that? Now let me caution us to tap the brakes and not answer that question too hastily. We all have a natural tendency to blame our problems on other people. Recently, an overweight man filed a lawsuit against McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King, and KFC 
alleging that their food had made him fat. He was right, of course. The problem is nobody held a gun to his head and made him eat that food. That's basically what the judge said when he threw out the case. But other people aren't always the cause of our seduction. For example, there's no single person you can point to as the agent of Solomon's demise. He was seduced by privilege, power, riches, and the accolades of others. That's probably why I didn't realize what was happening. If it had been just a matter of one beautiful woman disrobing in front of him, I feel confident he would have put two and two together. But because there was no seductress and because it was a gradual process that unfolded over the length of a 40-year reign, it was easy for him just to lie back and let the current carry him along. Listen to me. If we are being seduced, the thing we need more than anything else is what Solomon apparently never got. And that is a wake-up call. Maybe this morning that can be something for some of us. What I want us to understand is that Solomon's seduction was very gradual. I'm sure he never thought his choices would eventually lead him into full-blown idolatry. But it did. And that's how the seduction of sin is, by the way. C.S. Lewis wrote, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. And while a Christian is safe from hell, what Lewis said still applies if you want to run your life into a ditch. Sin is also compared to leprosy in the Bible in that it begins completely unnoticed. But eventually it has the ability to take over your entire body as your flesh begins to ulcerate and your limbs begin to lose feeling. Isn't that a great picture of sin? Just like leprosy, some of the things that used to bother us and even shock us can slowly have a numbing effect to where we don't even notice it anymore. Well, until it starts to stink and phalanges and appendages start dropping off. The thing to remember this morning is both rivers and people become crooked by following the path of least resistance. It's also wisely been said, if you give Satan an inch, eventually he'll become a ruler. Verse 4, please. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of his father David had been. It says that when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away. As someone who is now 58 years old, that's a sobering reminder to me. It's scary to realize that most of the people who failed in Scripture 
failed in the second half of their lives. Solomon had exhorted the people back in chapter 8 to have hearts that were perfect towards the Lord. That is, an undivided heart, totally yielded to him alone. Yet now we see his own heart is no longer perfect with God. Now Solomon didn't totally abandon Jehovah, but just made him one of the many gods that he worshipped. And that was a direct violation of the first two commandments, which were... The Lord Jehovah is the only God, the true and the living God, and he will not be put on the same level as the false idols of the nations. Isaiah 46, 9 says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. What happened is what God said would surely happen. And that is, his wives turned his heart away to their false gods. If he studied for a month, I don't think Solomon could have made worse choices. A review of Solomon's life reveals that the majority of his violations of God's word related to three very direct commands. First, he broke the command that God gave for his people not to marry pagans. Deuteronomy 7.3 says you must not intermarry with them. Second, he broke the command God gave to kings not to marry many wives. Deuteronomy 17.17 says the king must not take many wives. Why? For himself, because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And third, he broke the command for kings not to accumulate excessive wealth. Deuteronomy 17, 17 goes on to say, and he must not accumulate in large amounts of wealth and silver or gold for himself. Not only that, other than this link to his wife, Solomon's choice of gods really makes no sense. Why is that? In the ancient world, polytheists tended to worship the gods of the nations who had conquered their armies, or at least the gods of the countries that were more powerful than their own. Ironically, Solomon is worshiping the gods of the people that he has already conquered and controlled. What could he possibly gain from such activity? The whole episode makes no sense. Just as idolatry makes no sense. But I think that Solomon fell into the same trap that Samson fell into. What do I mean? Solomon was told you're not to add to yourself gold, horses, or wives. Well, Solomon added gold and nothing happened. Solomon added horses and nothing happened. And I'm convinced that when Solomon added these wives, he was sure that nothing was going to happen. And yet it seemed that the final line to be crossed, that led him into full-blown idolatry. It says he also began to worship their idols, thereby breaking both the first and second commandment, which forbids the worship of other gods. And so we can say that Solomon's polygamy turned him into a polytheist. Now this is unbelievably tragic, since Solomon was the great son of an even greater father chosen by David to be the king of Israel. 
Psalm would reign for 40 years and become the golden boy that brought about Israel's golden age. But his golden age is not even going to surpass his death. Underneath that glittering surface, he had planted the seeds of his kingdom's destruction. That would be hidden for a time. The problem was found in Solomon's heart. His father David had been known as a man after God's heart. But Solomon would prove to have a divided heart. What's even more sad is that it was Solomon who had asked the Lord to give him a hearing heart and his request was granted. So the Solomon could say in Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. But it happened in the time of his old age. Decisions and actions taken over many years at last have their effect. It seems the effect was not immediately apparent. And we are left to wonder, did each compromise make the next one just a little bit easier? Did each departure from God's ways contribute to a spiritual hearing loss in the hearing heart that he once had until in his old age his heart was completely turned away from the Lord? This all happened because Solomon tolerated his wife's idolatry. He was just considerate enough to give all those women space, so to speak. He was generous and open-minded, accommodating, flexible, and our culture's favorite word, he was tolerant. And that's how compromise works, by the way. Did you know that in the days of the Roman Empire, Rome was content to add Jesus to the pantheon of gods they already had that was acceptable for worship? But the exclusivity of Christianity was not tolerated, much like today. Christians were told they had to worship Caesar as a god. But all they had to do was either bow to his image or burn a pinch of incense before his image. Just give a token nod to the emperor as being God. Christians were even told they didn't even have to mean it just to burn a pinch of incense. Can you just hear them saying, come on, be reasonable. Just go through the motions. Just compromise. But there were some believers who refused to compromise. And often as a result of that, they were thrown to lions or burned alive. Now today, compromise may not kill us physically, but it will definitely kill us spiritually. The end of result of compromise was that Solomon had abandoned his God. It's almost impossible to recognize in these verses the man who prayed that great dedicatory prayer at the beginning of his reign. This defection began when Solomon tolerated 
the false gods. He did not insist that his pagan wives leave their pagan gods in their homeland and worship the Lord alone. And whether he felt that was for political necessity or because of a misguided tolerance, he permitted the presence of gods in Jerusalem. He imported his wives, and they in turn imported their gods. One compromise inevitably led to another in the process of creeping idolatry. As I said, Solomon's compromise wasn't a sudden thing. He gradually descended into idolatry. First, he permitted his wives to worship their own gods, and then he tolerated their idolatry and even built shrines for them. And big shock. Eventually, he began to participate in the pagan practices with his wives. His sensual love for his many wives was more compelling than his spiritual love for the Lord, the God of Israel. He was a man with a divided and a disobedient heart. And people who are double-minded are unstable and dangerous. Going back to Egypt may have been Solomon's first step in turning away from the Lord. If you remember, he secured a bride from Egypt and even purchased horses and chariots there. Both of these actions revealed Solomon's unbelief and the seeds of his destruction. He married the Egyptian princess in order to establish a peace treaty with her father, and he wanted horses and chariots probably because he didn't believe that Jehovah could protect the land. What his father David had written in Psalm 20 was not in Solomon's creed when David wrote, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. In terms of biblical geography, Egypt represents the bondage of the world. And the wilderness pictures the unbelief of God's people today as like Israel, they wander and fail to lay hold of their inheritance that we have in Christ. But the promised land represents the rest God gives to those who trust Christ, submit to him, and go forth conquering in faith. Make no mistake about it this morning. All believers have been delivered from the world system that is contrary to God. And all believers are exhorted to claim their inheritance in Christ and not to go about wandering aimlessly through life. No Christian believer has to trust the world for anything because we have received in Christ every blessing that we need and all that we need for life and godliness. We are in the world physically, but we don't have to be in this world spiritually. Now we can notice the subtlety of sin. How is it so subtle? Because it is internal. It is to use the key phrase in our passage, a matter of the heart. That term occurs five times in verses 2 through 4. The Bible, however, does not use the heart as does contemporary Western culture merely to denote emotions and feelings. That's part of it, but the Bible has a bigger view about the heart. 
It means the willing, loving, thinking center of a person. The Bible does not separate the head or brains or mind and heart. But rather, really, the head is in the heart. So the fixation on the heart in this text tells us that we are dealing with the invisible and the internal. But that is what makes infidelity so subtle, is that it begins in the heart of a man or a woman. Long before you see a Chemos chapel going up outside Jerusalem, a royal heart had already taken a turn for the worse. This infidelity is also subtle because it is so very gradual. Verse 4 has a scary line where it says, When Solomon was old, his wives had turned away his heart after other gods. It was not some sudden attack or irresistible assault that explains Solomon's plunge into pagan idolatry. No. It took years. It was the result of the creeping pace of accumulated compromises and the fruit of a conscience desensitized by repeated permissiveness. As we finish up, I just want to look at one more thing. Verse 4 says, For when Solomon was old, his wife turned his heart away to follow other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of his father David had been. Wait a minute. Did it just say that David's heart was wholly devoted to God? Do you mean that David who acted crazy, scratching at the gate with, I quote, Spittle in his beard, David? Do you mean that David saw a woman bathing, took her, slept with her, and got her pregnant, David? Do you mean that David, who after being able to cover up his sin, had her husband Uriah carry his own death warrant into battle, David? Do you mean that David, who in pride numbered the people, and as a result, 70,000 people died, David? Yep. That's him. So how in the world can the Bible say that his heart was totally devoted to the Lord? It can say this because David, with all of his imperfections, trusted God throughout his life. While Solomon trusted in his ability to negotiate a good treaty. That's what got him into trouble. Once he embraced negotiation and compromise as the main tenets of his foreign policy, things went downhill in a hurry. Instead of trusting the God who had promised to protect and defend Israel from all of her enemies, Solomon started negotiating treaties and business deals with the surrounding nations. However, here, as often in the book of Kings, David is always viewed in the light of of God's grace towards him, proving that his sin had been put away and what he had been washed thoroughly from his iniquity, cleansed from his sin, and is now whiter than snow. If it isn't you, that can be you today. Whether you need salvation as a non-Christian or cleansing as a Christian, 
We are promised that his blood is sufficient for both. If you are in need of either, please see me after service. And we thank you, Lord, that blood never loses its power. And I admit in front of these people today, Lord, that my heart can be seduced and easily seduced. That's why I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. For you promise that if we walk in your spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of our flesh. But Lord, none of us in here can do this in our own strength. It has to be through your Holy Spirit. Let us not fool ourselves today, O God. Reveal to each person within the sound of my voice where we truly are with you. And let us make things right in whatever way we need to do that. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.